0: Well, in any story, there are just a handful of moments that if you're closing your eyes when you're watching the movie, or if you checked out mentally when you're reading the story, you'll be lost because you'll miss a pivotal moment in the development of the plot. I was reminded of this not too long ago, and Jody and I were in the movie theater watching a movie, and it was a movie that I was really enjoying. I was into it, but I had to go, you know? By the way, the, the movie theaters trick you into getting the large drink because it's the only one that they provide a refill for. So I'd been drinking, I'd been watching, the more I watched, the more I drank, and then all of a sudden I realized, man, I'm not going to be able to last through this movie, i have got to have to excuse myself for a few minutes. The problem is I didn't want to miss anything important, I'd never watched this movie before, so I had to sort of guess. And of course, you can imagine what happened. I was only gone for a few minutes. I came back and it was like it was a whole different story. I'd missed something important. So then I had to whisper to my wife. She had to fill me in and catch up. Now, here's the thing about Genesis 12, the text that Aaron read to us and that we're going to study this morning. It is one of the pivotal moments and the unfolding of the grand story of redemption in the scripture. In fact, to miss Genesis 12 or to not fully understand what God is communicating to us through this story is a little bit like being at the restroom at this pivotal moment of the movie. So as we're entering into this series on the life of Abraham covering a number of chapters in Genesis, uh, this morning, this particular passage is one that we don't want to miss. We want to pay attention to it. We want to dig deep into it. We want to uncover and unpack some things that will help the rest of the story make sense. And I'd say it this way, the story that we're talking about, all this series from now probably until mid-October is how long it'll take us to walk through the life of Abraham in these chapters. This story is epic. In fact, I was reflecting this weekend as I was worshiping last night and this morning, kind of taking in the set, the stage set behind us. This is an epic story stage set it reflects well the epic nature of the story so it's big it's broad it's huge it impacts really history of mankind and yet at the same time our story is very personal it's personal for abram and it's personal for you and me and you may be asking how is this moment in history how does it have anything to do with me well Remember the old song that you learned in Sunday school growing up. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Who's with me? Right. Now, why is it that we call Abraham our father? Why is it that we can say, and I'm I'm taking it that most of us in the room come from a non-Jewish heritage. We're Gentiles. Abraham, as you know, is the father of the nation of Israel. How is it that we can say that we are also children of Abraham? Well, we're going to find out this morning in this particular passage. Secondly, I know that your moment in time this morning is unique. Some of you have brought in a heavy heart this morning. Maybe you're going through circumstances that are difficult to understand. And you would sort of cry out this morning, Father, I just need a clear word from you. Others of you may be coming in this morning with joyful heart, with gladness. There may be a sense of expectation this morning as you worship that God would, would, in a sense, continue to bless you in whatever ways he's blessing you. Others of you may have come in this morning maybe not feeling much of anything at all. Perhaps just the simple routine of life has numbed you to the place of kind of feeling disconnected from your Father, disconnected from God and we're all coming in to this particular moment in our story hoping this morning that God would in a sense speak to us personally And that's my prayer this morning as well. In fact, as I've come to dig into this particular moment in redemptive history, I've come to realize that my moment this morning is closely tied to it. In fact, I'd say it this way for all of us I think it's important for us to locate where we are along this redemptive path in order for our moment right now to make sense. And in order for us to keep going with hope and faith and whatever the circumstances of life that you've kind of brought into the room this morning. And Another way that you might think of this is the opportunity as we locate ourselves along the redemptive story is to realize that the story, although not about us, it's so much bigger than us, is very much related to us, is, is very much involving of us because as we shall see only by locating ourselves in the story do we start living lives fully alive under the kingship, and I would say under the fatherhood of the same God that Abraham prayed to. So I'd invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. And as we dig in, I want to set the stage before we get into the text proper. And and I'll say it this way. I, I think to fully understand what's happening at this pivotal moment in redemptive history, you need to know something about the plot of the Bible, And you need to know something about Abraham's particular moment. In other words, some of the cultural and historic background that's going on at this moment in history. And if you understand those two things, the grand big picture plot of the Bible and Abraham's particular moment, it'll help us understand how our moment intersects with that. Well, let's start with the idea of the plot behind all of the Bible. Uh, Michael last week did a remarkable job of walking us through the first part of the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, all the way into Genesis 12, where we'll be this morning. And one of the things I most appreciated about last week's message is he didn't just stop in Genesis, he went to Acts, he went to the church, he connected the dots so that we could see how the beginnings in Genesis are being lived out through the church era, which we're now a part of, and we're gonna do more of the same this morning. I want to put it this way, I would say, uh, I would summarize what Michael shared with us last week by saying that the, the Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden, Revelation 21, which is the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. And if you want to ask what do those two things have in common, what does the garden and the city have in common, I would say it this way, they represent God's original and final intent for his creation, which are one and the same. God's original intent and God's final intent are for the people of God to be in the place of God with full access to the presence of God. God's people, God's place, God's presence. That's what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. That's what we will all enjoy, those of us that are believers of Jesus Christ, for eternity in the new Jerusalem. And in between, from Genesis 3 all the way up in through Revelation until you get to about chapter 20, 21, we have this tension where there's this unresolved problem in the storyline. If you want to think about it this way, if you're watching a movie or you're reading your favorite novel, a problem is introduced and you're wondering, how is this going to be resolved? And there's the tension of the story that is real for you and me. We feel it in the pits of our stomach. Many of us have brought that tension into the room this morning. And the question becomes, how do we live well between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21? That's the big idea, that's the big picture of the Bible that Michael walked us through last week. Now let's talk about Abraham's particular moment in history. In fact, if you noticed carefully in the text that Aaron read this morning, he wasn't called Abraham yet, he was Abram. And I would encourage us to think of it this way, before there was the law, before there was the nation of Israel, before there were prophets, before there were psalms, before there was the temple, before there was the church, Before even there was a man named Abraham, there was a man named Abram. And onto this scene, this man appears that God has been preparing. He's been setting the chessboard, so to speak. God knows who this man is. God knows what his plan is for him. But the scene that Abram comes into, there is no identified people of God at this point in the history. There is no identified place of God. And at this moment, there's no real access to the real presence of God that had been lost in Eden when sin entered the world. So that's the setting that our story begins. Let's talk briefly more about the time and place of Abram as we even begin to get into the text in just a moment. Uh, Abram's life occurred approximately 2,000 B.C., so do the math, that was a little more than 4,000 years ago. So there's a lot of time, a lot of space, a lot of cultural differences between his day and his culture and ours. But I think if we understand two words this morning, it'll help us get a head start into understanding Abram's time and place and his culture and you'll see these two words not explicitly the first one anyway in the text but the idea behind this first word is all throughout our passage this morning it's the word patriarch Abram lived in a patriarchal society which was very different than ours Now, many of you, when you hear the word patriarch, some some of the baggage may start coming into your mind, and you're thinking, well, it was just a male-dominated, male-ruled society, and and that was true to a large extent, but I want to help you understand this concept of patriarch a little more broadly. There were no, for the most part, there were no governing states back then. Most people didn't live under the authority of kind of a unified national government. Most of the people in that day and age lived under the authority of the patriarch of their family. So the way this worked in this society was you had the the oldest living male in this family and literally you lived on a compound in your father's house. This Hebrew term of Beit Av stands for the house of the father and it wasn't just literally one structure. It was the compound of homes that would gather around the patriarch's house and it would typically be the patriarch and his wife, his children... If he had daughters that were unmarried, they would would live with them on the family compound. And the sons of the patriarch, even if they were married, the sons and their wives and children would live on this compound. So you begin to have this gathering of the family. The patriarch was responsible for administering justice within the confines of his family. The patriarch was responsible for providing for the family to make sure that everyone had enough food to make sure that the harvest was going well, to make sure that the family unit was protected from enemies. And so if you think of it this way, it wasn't just your father in the sense that you and I think about our father. This was your father, but he was also very much your Lord in the sense of kind of your governing, your provision, your lifeline. And of course, we know through our biblical history that if a woman was disconnected from a husband or a father or even a son, she had no recourse in this society. There was no no government aid to help her. She was out on her own. This was why it was so important for women not only be married, but to have children, particularly sons, because it would be the son who would grow up and provide for her in her old age. This connection to the father's house, the Beit Av is critical. This is what this patriarchal society was all about. Now, why does this matter so much? Take a look at Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. And what God was inviting Abram to, even commanding Abram to, was to do something fairly radical for that day. He was to leave the house of his father that had been established in this city And he was to go out and put his faith, put his trust in his heavenly father to provide for him. And oh, by the way, Abram, take your family with you. Take your wife. Take your nephew Lot. Uh, Abram at this stage would have been the oldest son of Terah. There had been an older brother who had passed away earlier. So Abram was responsible for kind of carrying on this house of his father, Terah, when Terah passed away. But now it's Abram's responsibility to do that. But God is calling him to something new, to leave his relatives. Notice the progression in the text. Leave your country, that would have been the designation with sort of the, the, the least connection from Abram's point of view. Progressing to your relatives, that was the clan, so the extended family. The second cousins and third cousins and people that would associate themselves by blood with some level. And then your father's house. This is getting closer to home. From country to your relatives to your father's house. And indeed God was in fact calling him away to something new. Well, let's talk about the land for just a minute. At the end of verse 1, God says, to the land, which I will show you. Uh, I want to show you a map so that you can understand the three most important regions in the story of Abram. In fact, if you understand these three regions, it'll make the whole Old Testament and New Testament as well make a lot more sense to you. Uh, In the center kind of upper right portion of the map, you have Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means the land between the rivers. The rivers that that is referring to, of course, are the Tigris and Euphrates Rivers. So Abram began his life in the city of Ur, which you see kind of on the bottom right of Mesopotamia. And Ur was a very significant, very powerful city back in that day. Toward the end of Terah's life, Terah being Abram's father, they moved the family unit up through Mesopotamia to the very north, kind of west portion of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, a city called Haran. And that is where our story begins in Genesis 12. God is calling Abraham from Haran to leave and go into Canaan. Now Canaan, you see it labeled, also called Palestine, the promised land. This is that area that so much of the Bible is focused on. In fact, so much of world history is focused on this little stretch of land that connects Mesopotamia up in the northeast down to Egypt, which you see in the southwest. There was a superpower in Egypt, superpowers, Assyria, and then later Babylonia uh, in Mesopotamia region. And they would constantly traverse through the land of Canaan, the promised land, in order to do battle with one another. And that's one of the reasons why the promised land, the land of Canaan, had so much uh, warfare and and so much... um, disruption during the biblical era and still does to this day so God was calling Abram from this area of Mesopotamia down into Canaan to a land that Abram had never been to an unknown place to him God was up to something profound but don't miss the level of faith it would have taken Abram to leave the father's house and launch out on his own to follow God Well, the land, it's interesting to note, was passed down in that day through the generations according to your family. So if your family owned land, it would be passed down to you and then your grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren. And I want to read to you verses 5 to 7 to find out what Abram encounters As he journeys into Canaan, we'll pick it up where Aaron left off earlier, verse 5 of Genesis 12, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land, as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Note, this land was already possessed. It was already quote unquote owned by a different group of people. Verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The land that God spoke of to Abram, that God showed Abram was a future promise. You may be surprised to know that Abram in his life never possessed the promised land. He was wandering. In fact, he became uh, a little bit of a a wanderer. Abram would have been a, a shepherd of sorts. He would have had large flocks and he would wander throughout the promised land, throughout Canaan, from place to place, wherever the flocks would need to go to get better food supply. And along the way, he would trade with the inhabitants of the major settlements and cities within this promised land area. He never settled. God made him a promise, and to his death, he never saw completely the fulfillment of that promise. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews picks up this theme in Hebrews chapter 11 when he talks about Abraham. And we'll talk about this throughout the series, how he says he never fully received what he was promised. He lived on faith. And literally, when it comes to the land, that was the story of Abraham's life. Now, I want to go back to this idea of patriarch before we move on to one more term. What's going on here culturally? Abram is himself a patriarch, and yet God is calling him to sort of entrust himself into the care and protection and governance of a greater patriarch, a heavenly father, if you will. So there is a sense of Abram, this highest sort of authority within his clan within his family, God is saying, I want you to take your authority and submit it under mine, and I will provide for you. I will be your father, capital F, father, capital P, patriarch. I will provide for you and your family, Abraham, as you put your faith in me. Now, the interesting thing about this is Abraham's part of the relationship is is fairly minimal on paper. Right, it's, it, let, let's look again at what God calls Abram to do in verse one, go forth. Leave. In other words, God's telling him, abandon your own self-governance and live under my rule. This is a call to trust. This is a call to faith. This is a call to belief. But not simple intellectual assent. This was risky, all right? This was a sense, put your eggs, Abram, all of them in my basket, As a side note, there's no indication in the text that Abram was living any differently from any other man in that region at the time. He did not earn God's attention through his righteousness. The most you could perhaps say about Abram is that God looked down and saw a man he knew would believe him. And he called that man. Well, Abram's part of this new relationship from son to father with his heavenly father was to believe, to trust. God's part was very substantial and it can be summarized by the second key word that I want to unpack for you this morning. It's the word blessing. If you have a pen or pencil with you, I'd invite you to circle or underline the root word blessing in the verses two and three. You'll see it five times, Bless. Blessing, bless, blessed, five different times that word appears in two verses. It's obviously important. Now, we have to do some work in 2015 in our culture to fully understand the concept of blessing in the Old Testament. See, in our culture, we kind of tend to associate it with goodwill, pleasant wishes, Uh, when someone sneezes, you say, bless you. And it kind of has this idea of sort of I, I whatever kind of mystical magical I hope that your life goes well. That's a blessing. Now in this ancient culture, in Abram's culture, the idea of blessing was very tangible. It represented life, because to receive blessing from the patriarch meant provision from him. It meant food or perhaps land. It meant protection. It was this idea that I can survive, I can have life because my father, my patriarch is providing for me, giving the blessing. And by the way, you've heard of the double portion of blessing that would go to the oldest son. Why was that? Because the oldest son was going to be the future patriarch and he would need to provide for the whole family. So the idea of blessing, if you're thinking of it as good wishes or well wishes, remove that idea from your head and think of it very, very tangibly. Now, on the other hand, to be cursed by the patriarch meant that you would be cut off from provision. And it could, in some instances, be a death sentence. So think about blessing and cursing this way. It was the difference between life and death in this culture. This was an ancient culture who was just fighting to survive. The blessings that God promised Abram are extensive and comprehensive. Look at verse 2. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. God is telling him, you shall receive life from me for the purpose that you might be life for others. For the purpose, Abram, that you might be a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you, I will curse. God is saying, I will so closely associate my name and my presence with you, Abram, that your friends will be my friends, your enemies will be my enemies. And then there's this beautiful, somewhat, Mysterious, at least at this time in the story, phrase at the end of verse 3 and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is telling Abram that he will be a vehicle through which God will bless all the families of the earth. That's a staggering promise. One whose meaning will be unfolded later in the story of redemption, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to go back for just a moment to this idea of the people of God and the place of God with access to the presence of God. And I hope you see in this promise of blessing to Abram, those three things start to become unfolded. There's now a direction, there's now a plan. The plot is unfolding. Where do you see the people of God begin to be established? God's promising to make Abram a great nation. In verse 7, it's more explicit. He's naming descendants. He's promising descendants. Well, where do you see the place of God? This land, the land of Canaan, God has chosen it for his good sovereign purposes. And he is promising to Abram that this will be the land. This will be the place of the people of God. And then the presence of God is found in the establishment of relationship that God is making with Abram. When God says and speaks to Abram, his presence is in his words. Verse 7, it says the Lord appeared to Abram. We don't know what that looked like and what form that was, but this is the first instance, at least in the life of Abram, where it describes God appearing to him. And then note in verse 8, in fact, I want to read it. Then he, Abram, proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. That little phrase is an English uh, translation of the Hebrew that simply means he was worshiping. He began a worshiping relationship with this heavenly father, with this new heavenly patriarch. This was the presence of God that Abram could now experience in a relationship of worship with the one true God. Now, where does our story intersect Abram's story? Where do we locate ourselves? Well, I gave a hint a minute ago with this final phrase in Genesis 12, verse 3, and I want to come back to it. In you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be Blessed, this is where we find ourselves. And in fact, as you trace the development of these themes throughout Scripture, what you find is from Abraham's line, from his descendants, these same descendants that God was promising him in Genesis 12, comes Messiah, comes Jesus. Greek word for Messiah is Christ. We are Christians. So there's a sense when Jesus arrives on the scene that this promise all the way back in Genesis 12 verse 3 is beginning to come true and the Apostle Paul taps into this theme in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to invite you to turn there just to read some verses that explain in theological terms what God was talking about when he made this promise back in Genesis 12. So turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll read. Several verses beginning in verse 6. This is Paul unpacking the real meaning of what was going on as God called to this man Abram. Verse 6 of Galatians 3. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 15. Therefore be sure that is, it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, Abraham saying, quote, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Pause right there. You see how Paul is putting Abraham in the same category as all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is explaining this is the way that that somewhat cryptic promise in Genesis twelve three has been unfolded and revealed to us. And then I want you to skip down to verse 14 in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, there's that important word again, blessing, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's us. So that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Go back one more time to the big idea, the purpose of the plot of redemption. The people of God Living in the place of God with access to the presence of God. What Paul is saying is that the people of God are all those who believe Jews and Gentiles united through faith in the one God through Jesus the Son, the place of God, is not talked about explicitly in Galatians 3, but we're gonna see in Revelation 21 and 22 the new Jerusalem, the new promised land, in a sense that we are waiting for, this place where we will live with God eternally and the presence of God being promised through the Spirit. And as Michael reminded us last week in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost, the Spirit indwelt all those who'd believed in the name of Jesus Christ. And now the prophecies became fulfilled that said God's presence will will be with his people. And there's a sense that we experience God's presence now through the Spirit, and we will experience it face to face when we're with him in the new heaven and the new earth. So the people who ever believe the place, and, and by the way, I wanna just say this about the place. As Jesus sat in his last supper with his disciples, he made a promise to them as well. He said it this way, in my Father's house, Bait of the house of my Father, there are many dwelling places. I go there to prepare a place for you. Now, that would have had meaning to the disciples. They would have recognized that phraseology to understand, this is an invitation for them to dwell on the family compound with the heavenly Father, with the true patriarch. Through Jesus, the Son, God was making a place. For the people now how do we in this moment in time live out our part of the story three brief lessons as we close this morning and my hope is that as we think about and talk about the application of this text that whatever it is you've brought in whatever your circumstance whether it's joyful or painful or hurtful that you would be able to trust God a little bit more. Like this spiritual ancestor, like this spiritual father, Abraham. Number one, the invitation for Abram is the invitation for us. Now, what do I mean by that? God invites Abram to go forth to the land which I will show you. Jesus' invitation to us is to leave all that we are trusting in our security, our identity, our self-salvation projects and follow him to shift our trust, if you will, from what is safe and what is secure and all the things that we've been grabbing onto for life and shifted to something that, although we can't always see it, is more secure and more faithful, but it takes faith to do that. The invitation for Abram is the same as the invitation for us. You might think of it this way the entry point into relationship with God is always faith. God did not choose Abram because of his lifestyle. In fact, if. You want to note Genesis 15, 6, Abram simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same for us. And we get confused on this sometimes. Or sometimes we think, well, it was enough for me to have faith to get into heaven, but but now as my Christian life unfolds, I've got to to really please God in in a sense with my actions where he's not happy with me unless I'm living right. He's not fully satisfied with me, that he's disappointed in me unless I'm living right. Or there's many of us who kind of feel like, I think God sort of maybe kind of loves me, but he's really disappointed in me. But the future version of me, when I get my act together, now that will be a me that God can love. That's not what the scripture teaches. That's not the nature of our relationship with God. If it is faith that brings you into relationship with God, then it is faith and belief that secures your relationship with God. And you are sitting right now, regardless of how your circumstances look, you are sitting in the pleasure and the love and the covenant faithfulness of your God who is the same as Abram's God. And the reason that we can claim that is because of the promises of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Lesson two, trusting God requires dependency. Once Abraham left his father's household, his relatives, his family in Mesopotamia, if God didn't provide for him, he was dead. If God didn't keep his end of the deal, if God didn't fulfill his promise, Abram would have died in the wilderness. He could not have provided for himself by his own means. And I was thinking about this this week and I realized, you know, in our modern comforts and conveniences and technology, we often live with the facade that we're independent from our provider, that we're independent even moment by moment from the God whose hand cares for us. And I don't know if there's been a culture of people in the history of the earth that it has been so easy for us to forget our dependence upon a Father who loves us. It is so easy for us either physically, materially or even emotionally and spiritually just to sort of go off on our own and kind of think, I kind of got this life figured out. It's not perfect, but I'm doing it. It's not perfect, but I've got my 401k ready for me in the bank account. If things go rough, I've got the emergency fund. I've got my entertainment. I've got my technology. I can just sort of check out from the pain of life and sort of subsist in this level where I don't really feel things. Trusting God requires dependency. One of my favorite reminders for me of this is in Job 34. I want to just read you these two verses, Job 34, 14 through 15. If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. Eugene Peterson has a beautiful paraphrase of those verses. He says it this way, if God decided to hold his breath, every man, woman, and child would die for lack of air. And in this dependency, Abram will be a great example for us through this series. He had no other choice than to throw himself down upon the provision, upon the protection, upon the blessing of the father that he was in relationship with Why do we try to live any differently? And as this series plays out for us over the next number of months, one of my prayers is that we as a a people of God are gonna become more and more aware of our dependence upon our Heavenly Father. One more lesson, and this comes straight from the tagline on our series on Abraham. Trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. Abram lived in a polytheistic culture. The idea that everyone had their own personal God, but to claim that there was just one and only one true God was a radical change, was a radical idea. Not in the history of creation, but at that period of time, culture had devolved to a place where men and women were each calling upon their own particular God and worshiping the sun and worshiping the moon and worshiping all these other things. Abram staked his life on the fact that there is one God who can be known personally to him who had made promises and blessings that he would fulfill. Now, what happened... After Abram made this radical, crazy, nonsensical decision to follow the one true God into an unknown land, what happened after that? Well, Abram's God proved himself time and time again to be the one true God. Abram's God proved himself faithful, loyal to his promises, loyal to his covenant, Abram's God proved himself to be the one who built the nation of Israel, and what happened after that? He proved himself to be the God that would birth from that nation of Israel, the Messiah, the Promised One, who would come to redeem mankind, and what happened after that? The church was birthed, and people began to experience the presence of God through the Spirit. What happened after that? Church history unfolded all the way until we get to 2015, and we sit here in Brentwood Tennessee, still worshiping, still praying to, still hearing from, the covenant-keeping, loyal, loving God that showed up 4,000 years ago to this man, Abram. Now, if this is true, and if the words of the song we sang earlier are true, and I want to reread them, the Lord our God is ever faithful never changing through the ages. If that is true, then here's what is, al- what is also true. From this darkness, He will lead us. Trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. Trusting God makes sense even when it's dark around you. Trusting God makes sense even when your circumstances might cry out to you right now, I'm not sure God is faithful I'm not sure God is loving, I can't see it. Our opportunity in this series is to follow the life of a man who stepped out into an unknown, dark, scary world, simply because he believed the call of his heavenly father. It's not about circumstances It's about the character of the God who calls us. And that God, as we will proclaim each and every week in this series, is faithful. He is true. He is loving. He has showed up and he will show up again. I wanna invite you to bow your heads and we're gonna pray, and then after the prayer, we're going to spend some more time worshiping. We're going to sing one song together that's proclaiming our faith, proclaiming our belief, proclaiming the fact that we, just like Abraham, have been called by God and respond simply with belief, respond through faith, just say yes to the fact that God is true, the fact that God is real, the fact that He's made a way for us, that He has made a path that he through his son Jesus Christ has come to rescue us and all the things that we believe we're going to have an opportunity to proclaim. And our Father, as we cry out to you our words of faith, our words of belief, I pray, God, that they would just move from our head down into our souls, our whole beings. Now, those of us in this room this morning that would doubt whether it be because of dark circumstances or mental or intellectual uncertainty, that, Father, You would boost our faith, that You would bolster our faith, that, Spirit, as we acknowledge Your presence with us, that You would speak deeply to us the truth that is proclaimed through Your Word. Father, I pray for the men and the women that have brought difficult things Into the room this morning, some that are in the middle of circumstances that don't make sense at all. Some of these have been crying out to you and they're growing weary, they're growing tired. There's a sense to them of wondering if you even hear them. I pray, Father, you would speak to them through the Word of God and the story of Abraham that you always keep your promises. You're always faithful to your covenant. You always do what you say you're going to do. And Father, while we wait, just like Abraham did, help us wait with faith. Help us wait with expectancy, not demanding that you will give us now what you have promised for us then. Help us, Father, to hold this tension of believing a promise and experiencing now only in part what we will know in full later on. Give us an encouragement and endurance as we walk this path, following a Savior who has made the road clear. And we pray in His name Amen.